and welcome back. It's Benjamin Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutenberg, with Mishpachan's Homefront, a wide-angle view of Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Gedalia. So the last few days is very sad, and we've opened that way more than once, but I think over Shabbos, the extremely heavy casualty figure, something like 15, the bias began on Sunday. Benjamin, it comes to mind as one of the popular Israeli Megidim, Baruch Rosenblum, has been saying. He said that there's this bureaucratic expression used to announce what the IDF uses to say it's cleared for publication. Title appeal soon. That's where the casualty reports begin each morning. We all wait for those in horror. And behind that cold bureaucratic language, he says, you know, who Tyler Pirsum, do you know what it means? It means another widow. It means more children. It means orphans. It means parents and whole extended families whose lives have been shattered. And there are so, so many of these. And his point was that we shouldn't get used to the fact and shelter behind this. Because we have to look it in the face, there are so, so many of them, and indeed, very bad news over the last few days. Gidalia, that's probably what's leading into growing debate over our tactics in the war and whether or not the IDF and the government, the war cabinet, is kowtowing to American demands to do less bombing to save Gaza civilians at the expense of our own soldiers. So this really blew up yesterday before a cabinet meeting, the normal routine Sunday cabinet meeting at the Knesset. So Minister Nir Barkat, who many feel is a possible successor to Netanyahu up the road, he spoke to the press before the meeting and he said, I'm worried to quote him. Actually, it's not a quote because he said it in Hebrew, but the English translation is, unfortunately, we are too nice and considerate. It's unthinkable that we would endanger our soldiers and send them exposed in all kinds of buildings without having bombed them, meaning the buildings beforehand. Surrendering to any external pressure, even if it is from our best friends, is a grave mistake for which we pay heavy prices. And he said that our role as the government of Israel is first and foremost to take care of the vital interests of the state of Israel. You must not give up because of any pressure. So this created a big fear because it was very unveiled criticism of the war cabinet and uh, probably specifically Prime Minister Netanyahu, who's in touch with President Biden every day. So there were a couple of reactions to it. The one from President Herzog, who said that let's stop the politicking because the enemy listens to these kinds of comments and it makes it look like we're not unified and it gives them encouragement. And then this morning, there was a comment from Healy Tropper, who was in Benny Gantz's party. And MK Tropper said that, what are you kidding? This is between me and Benny Gantz, we probably have 20 relatives, direct relatives in Gaza. You think we're endangering the lives of our relatives as well because of any political considerations? He said, stop it. So I want to make two comments, firstly about Herzog. Now, Gidal, you and I have both interviewed President Herzog. You interviewed him as president. I interviewed him as head of the opposition many years ago. I had a conversation with him when he was between jobs at the Jewish agency. That's for another time. We had an interesting conversation about his yichus and mine. Right. We both agree that he's a mensch. And uh, yeah. let's just leave it at that right now, because we know that he can be a controversial figure to some people, but he is a mensch and he's saying something important that, you know, let's not get into raw politics here. Perhaps Barkat should have said what he said in the cabinet meeting and not to the press. And the fact that he said it to the press does smack of politics. There's no question about it. On the other hand, my concern is about stifling dissent. I think Barkat probably, in my own opinion, was right to speak out publicly because we need debate. The mantra is let's wait until the war is over to start assigning blame. We're not assigning blame, but 
If you're talking about tactics that involved the lives of our soldiers who were fighting in Gaza, you have to have an open debate. And if you're going to stifle that debate, then we can't get to a better place. And we've got to do that. Whether there is American pressure and how much, and how much that's impacting our decisions on the ground. So that is probably going to stay inside the security cabinet. We're not going to get 100% clarity on that. But I think public debate is healthy. And I'm personally happy that Nir Barkat spoke out. And I respectfully disagree with President Herzog in this particular case. I don't think it's politicking. I think that it's necessary to get this out on the table. But Ewan, I'd agree with that. I just want to take up a number of points over there. First of all, just to back up on the first one, which is that Hubarakat is, many will remember he was the mayor of Yerushalayim. And yeah, for 10 years. Is, uh, correct. And he is a, definitely a future leadership contender. And I would say the reason that he's so relevant now is if you look around the coalition, the government table and the opposition, you'll find that almost to a man, the leaders are implicated in the disaster of what led to October the 7th. So as much as his criticism of... Dai, I want to say, including Benny Gantz, possibly. Correct, because correct, we have to correct. Remember, Benny Gantz was the Ramat Khal. He was the army chief of staff for many years. And so was Gadi Eisenkot, right? And so Yossi Cohen is being, you know, lauded to the skies. He was the former head of the Mossad who snatched the nuclear archives. And it's beyond clear that he has designs on the prime minister's chair. And I have to say that he is tarnished at this point. A man whose whole business was that he was the one who led this policy of appeasing and sending suitcases full of Qatari cash to Hamas. So to a man almost implicated, should not come off looking good, any of them, oppositional coalition. And yet if you take anyone, senior leadership figure who has not had a senior position in designing the security policy that collapsed on October the 7th, that is near Barakat. And that is why I think it's important to know where he stands. He's going to come out looking for possibly good from this. So my interject just for one second, I just want to say this is why it's so important that there not be an election here until you've had this investigatory commission that determines culpability and names names. Because until we know that, until we know who's culpable and who's responsible for this debacle, we won't know who we should really be voting for. Correct. And we need to know who knew what, when. That's really clearly what needs to happen. I'd make a second related point, which is the element that notice if you quoted one part, the quoted Barakat's words over there at the cabinet meeting, I think it's important to note what actually Bibi responded when Barakat said leadership is tested by the ability to withstand pressure. Okay, we're talking about the Americans, and unfortunately this cabinet does not withstand pressure. Netanyahu said there are countries whose positions we have to take into account. If we don't do that, eventually there'll be a UN decision to impose a blockade on us. The whole world will be against us. What was that? That was an admission for the first time. It's common knowledge that the bombing is far less of the campaign in the South. And yet we've never heard official confirmation that that is the case and that indeed that is because of pressure. And yet, but Netanyahu was saying with Pierre Molle that there are countries traditionally have taken into account. He's talking about America, obviously, first and foremost. That is important. And this is where I'd say that this is a terrible dilemma. This is indeed, as Gilly Chopper says, if no one thinks that anyone is going soft on this just because he's hard or hard about the fate of IDF soldiers. And by the way, Benyard, Parentheses, IDF soldiers, if there's some misconception, professional soldiers, their job to get into dangerous situations. I don't know if that's the case, but there was certainly not the case is you have to understand that these soldiers are doctors, they are bus drivers, they are people who work in Macaulay's and Falafel stands. These are every bit as ordinary civilians as the guards. That's the reality of Israel's citizen army. But that's why it's such a terrible dilemma. Because it's all well and good to say, let's ignore the White House. Let's just ignore it. Israel has to develop an ability to withstand external pressure. 
That's to a certain extent. The reality is that the condition of U.S. support is a fact, is that it comes with strings attached. And to my mind, yes, we should be pushing back. But ultimately, Bibi seems to be doing approximately the right thing in that if that's the hard and fast conditions, and that's what we communicate to them in the White House, bottom line, Israel has to go with that. There's no choice. Very sad. But that's the reality. Israeli soldiers end up paying for the White House and its policies. That is the hard reality. We can't ignore the White House, but on the other hand, there's always a question of whether we can push back and how far we can push back and what type of pushback the Americans will not only tolerate, but are actually expecting from us. This has also been a big discussion over the years that goes back to the days of when Yitzhak Tamir was prime minister, and he opposed America a lot of times on uh, building settlements, on uh, certain aspects in the follow-up to the war, the Gulf War. And it seems like, at least to some historians, that every time that Israel stood up to America, they respected us more. And it's not like they punished us. So that's something we have to keep in mind. But Vidal, you made an important point that you mentioned that the reservists are workers, the people who work in high-tech, the people who work in Makolets, as you said, in retail stores. So there's a organization in Israel, a social service organization, and a think tank called the Taub Center. They came up with some numbers that I want to bring down. At the peak of the battle in November, there were 900,000 workers, or 20% of the workforce, that were temporarily away from their jobs. That puts tremendous pressure on the economy, obviously. There have been close to 200,000, probably more by now, new applications for unemployment compensation. There are still over 250,000 evacuees, half of which are, were forced by the government to evacuate, the other half that voluntarily evacuated. And by the way, that doesn't take into account those who left the country, which are an estimated at least 50,000. So there's probably over 300,000 Jews who make Eretz Israel their home, who are not living in their homes right now. Not to mention also 7,500 minimum injured people that's burdening the hospitals here. So again, I like to bring these things up. Not that I'm happy with these numbers at all, of course, but I bring them up because Again, when we talk about the humanitarian side of things, it's not just people who live in Gaza who are suffering. There's a lot of human suffering on the Israeli side that is totally ignored in the Western media. Benjamin, I think those numbers speak for themselves. And I think we need to have a conversation also about a kind of type of Marshall plan for the Israeli economy in terms of massive investment. There is untold wealth and untapped Jewish wealth abroad of all types, orthodox, non-orthodox, et cetera. And it needs to, this is the time. There's opportunities to invest in everything here in Israel. Unfortunately, real estate has been affected everything. And we need the foreign cash flow now more than ever to prop up the economy. But I think if we're talking about numbers, Benjamin, I'd just like to share some more numbers which kind of speak for themselves, which is reporting that the IDF was or has been surprised to discover that the Hamas's array of tunnels and shafts is and this is eye-rubbing territory, five to 600% larger than its pre-war estimates. If before the army believed there were 500 kilometers in tunnels and about 1,000 shafts entry points into the network in the entire Gaza Strip, now we know there are thousands of kilometers of tunnels and thousands of shafts, right? And i just like to dwell a moment on the particular meaning of that. Obviously, we know it's yet more evidence of the colossal failure of intelligence and that has been that as a subject that has been belabored and will in future obviously inform so much of the post-war investigations but it also just means so many things we know it means that 
the talk of switching to stage three of the war, as if we've cleared up Gaza, is so remote and so disconnected from reality, so obviously a product of outside political pressure, that it's scary. There's thousands of kilometers. There's probably more tunnels underneath Gaza than there are good roads in many parts of Israel. And they're down there, and these places exist. And you can't simply say, well, we've conquered above ground. So my takeaway from this video is like this. Israel, in no way, should in no way be willing to go to stage three. And But let's just say, explain what stage three we're talking about. Stage three of the fighting means that we're going to treat the Gaza as Yudan Shomron, in which we have forces around the outside going inside for brief intel-driven commando raids and, and etc. That is a joke until you actually hold all the territory. And holding all the territory does not mean just holding above the ground. If you have Gaza Shalmala, then you have Gaza Shalmata as well. And the Gaza Shalmata is where the action is really happening. Thousands of kilometers in which sophisticated tunnels, we need to capture them and destroy them as well. It's going to take time to clean all that up, obviously. And I think the U.S. understands that more. If there's one area that it seems that Israel has been successful with the U.S., it's in explaining to them that this is going to be a long war. And we keep hearing from the White House that we're not telling Israel we're not giving them a specific exact time limit, and we understand that this war is going to go on until Israel feels the work is done. In terms of that particular dialogue between Israel and the White House, so we have much is like the Gaza control network, far more is underneath the surface than is above the surface. And we saw something emerge above the ground into the real world that we know last week with, or over the weekend with an op-ed by Tahir Negbi as a senior advisor the head of the National Security Council, in fact, Bibi's longtime henchman, and he's writing in Elaf, which is a Saudi-funded website, I think, that's in London, Arabic website, and it was caused waves because what he wrote there was that despite the fact that Netanyahu had talked about the fact that the Palestinian Authority cannot have any post-war role in Gaza, well, it's actually going to happen. And we say that as long as there is a deep and fundamental reform of the Palestinian Authority that addresses what goes on in the Palestinian street and fighting terror, etc., etc., then they can have a role in it. And that was like a bombshell. But you know, your take on that? There's no reforming the Palestinian Authority. It's just not going to happen. Not under Mahmoud Abbas, not under Shatia, not under Mohammed Dahlan, whose name has resurfaced once again. These are jihadists. And there might be jihadists in suits and ties in some cases, but they hate the Jews. They hate Israel. The fact that we're here disturbs them greatly, and they're just not going to stop. These are not people that you can deal with. Talk about the Concepcia. This was the Concepcia of Oslo that people said, well, you negotiate with enemies. You make peace with enemies. You don't negotiate with friends or make peace with friends. So I think we learned the hard way that we have to make peace with ourselves first and foremost. So you do negotiate with friends and you do make peace with friends. The second thing we have to learn is to forget the Palestinian Authority. We might have to go back to Mordechai Kedar's idea that the citizens in Gaza and Judea and Samaria, the Arab ones, are different clans. And you have to make deals with the individual clans rather than expect that they're going to have a functioning governing authority. I think we also have to talk about encouraging immigration. You know, there's immigration all over the world. It's a huge topic. It's a big topic in America. I think at a certain point, there's a lot of the Arabs who are living within the river to the sea who are going to have to decide where their future is. Nikki Haley, one of the Republican candidates for president, said the other day that you know, maybe there's room in Qatar and maybe there's room in Turkey and Egypt for 
a lot of these refugees. And I think there's a discussion that has to be brought up. I know that the term transfer is a dirty word. And uh, you can't say- It smacks of ethnic cleansing. Yeah, smacks of ethnic cleansing. It also smacks of America Hanna, who was a very controversial man. And I'm not suggesting that discussion, but we do have to discuss the possibility of immigration and immigration that would be financed by foreign governments, by some sort of world bank. So that just for the Arabs themselves, they don't have a future here. I don't care if you can rebuild Gaza, you're still going to rebuild it under some sort of tyrannical regime. That's not a life. They can have a better life elsewhere. And this is at least a discussion that needs to come up. I'd just like to say that to me, what this means is it's classic Bibi. Remember the 2009 Barry Land speech in which under heavy pressure from Obama, he finally first time said that the court recognized the possibility of a two-state solution. And to me, it's the same type of thing going on. This op-ed was a tactic to relieve the pressure from the Biden administration that there has to be some type of talk or what's going to happen the day after. And so he said that the day after the PA fundamentally reformed, PA could possibly take a role in this and could play a part in this. But the point being fundamentally reformed, and it means like this in theory, if they manage to clean their own stables and may turn themselves into an unrecognizable organization, then they could take control. I think this is, as I said, this is classic, the pressure relief, political pressure relief, and it won't happen. That's what he's banking on. He's banking on the fact that everyone knows that the reality is not going to play out in this way. And so, yes, it's, it's a possibility to nod to the dreams of peace, but at the same time, in a cost-free manner is what he's calculating. And in fact, they've already walked back obviously some of the impact of that statement. Yamimiyagidu, time will tell, as we say of it. So, Benjamin, I think we have our good news slot, and our good news slot today is going to be something meteorological and weather-related by virtue, by your hand. Right, despite all the talk about global warming and climate change, which we'll definitely leave for another uh, type of podcast, the good news, the simen bracha, the sign of blessing, is that uh, we had a lot of rain in Israel over Shabbos and even yesterday, and the Kinneret, which is our major freshwater resource, rose almost one foot during the course of the last three days. I don't know how to translate into that, how many cubic uh, inches of water is, but it's a lot of drinking water. And again, most importantly, it's a sign of blessing. And we really need to look at uh, the little signs nowadays. Correct. And it's a comforting, enduring fact of Israeli life that remains true, whether it's peace or war, is that Water bills only ever go up, they never come down. Despite the fact that maybe Knesset may be overflowing, you will never get a reduction in your water bill. So I'm happy to see that that war has not dented that enduring fact of Israeli life. Some things don't change, and it's comforting to have the familiar there. So we now want to wish you and listeners everywhere a good day and week. We'll see you at the end of the day.